How to Be a Rebel Leader is a show about individuals who raise organizations to new levels by challenging the status quo, pushing for change, and fighting for their beliefs. Hear stories of their journeys to success and the passion it took to get there. This is How to Be a Rebel Leader. I'm Marcella Lobo. On today's show, the story of a passionate consultant who left her high-paying job to start a search fund in Denver. After two and a half years and $400,000, Kelly chose not to acquire a business and instead started a Greenfield project to meet a need she discovered during her search. Kelly shares her, her career 360 and her current acquisition goals, which will take her company to the next level. I started my career in the media and technology industries, and that later translated to a career in management consulting at Deloitte for those industries in their TMT practice, tech, media, and telecom. And I tell many young people that if you can start your career in consulting or in any uh, type of role where you're getting a lot of experience with different companies, different industries, different functions, to go do it. Because I think my experience with Deloitte was uh, an absolutely wonderful place to start my career. And I believe all of those experiences were a big part of my foundation as an entrepreneur. Uh, I made the move from consultant to entrepreneur shortly after I went to Kellogg for business school. And for me, it was a big part of what I would call the journey from being an observer in this world to being a participant. Um, while I did love consulting, I felt like I was in the stands of the action, just watching it all. And I really wanted to be down on the field or down on the court, so to speak, playing the game, being involved, building things. And I fortunately had an opportunity to do so uh, before I left Deloitte, and that was when I was appointed to start an agency for Governor Hickenlooper of Colorado called the Colorado Innovation Network. I was brought into the role by uh, two uh, very, very important mentors of mine, Ken Lund and Ajay Manan, who uh, gave me the opportunity to step outside of professional services and get behind the driver's seat. Uh, we had to raise all of the funding to start this agency, hire a staff, develop the uh, whole business plan for it, and then go out and, and implement and build this organization that was ultimately designed to stimulate entrepreneurship in the state of Colorado for the purposes of economic growth and job creation. That's so. That's really interesting, and I'm and I'm I'm wondering what went through your mind when you were doing the pros and cons of doing a search fund. What were you most afraid of in terms of like being a first time CEO? To be honest, what I was the most novice uh, about with regards to the whole search fund process was the actual structuring of a transaction. I did not come from an iBanking or a private equity background, and so what I was most nervous about was the part of the process around packaging the debt, packaging the equity, putting together a transaction, completing the due diligence, and, and negotiating that deal, um, because that was new to me and a big reason why mm -hmm. I 
the traditional search fund model as opposed to one of the other flavors of entrepreneurship through acquisition was because I knew I would be able to rely on my investor base and the search fund community when it came to that point in time. When you were getting ready to start your search, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs do a lot of cold calls, uh, and that is a pretty, it's a pretty tedious task to, to a lot of people. Uh, some people love it. Like, how did you feel about those first months where you had to get in touch with a thousand companies and a lot of them wouldn't even take your calls? So I loved it. I'm, I'm very extroverted, and this part of the search process is generally very well liked by extroverted personalities and generally hated by introverted personalities. <laughs> I will say, though, I've, I have a number of friends and colleagues who are on the introverted side, and they hated their search um, because they hated that aspect of the process, and they went on to become amazing operators, and they love running a small business. And so it's, you know, there, there's three main parts of the search fund process. Uh, number one is finding the target. Number two is the, the part that I didn't have any experience in, and that was structuring the transaction and closing it. And then the third is operating the company and, and growing that company. And you, you've got to get comfortable at the very least with all three of those to be a successful um, searcher, really any successful entrepreneur who's going about the acquisition path. So what you're saying is that you, you don't need to be a banker and have private equity background to do a search fund and to... Uh, you can either be extroverted or introverted, and then depending on the phase of your search fund, you will be more comfortable with different aspects of it. So what would you say was your favorite part of those two years while you were trying to do deals and uh, close an acquisition? So I, I really enjoyed the literally hundreds of business owners I got to meet and talk to. Um, it was for, for someone who is intellectually curious, which I think is a lot of entrepreneurs, um, it's very fulfilling in the sense that you're diving into so many businesses, you're getting to know the owners and in many cases their management teams, and you're really looking at each opportunity as a, as a chance to put yourself in that driver's seat and say, what would I do with this company? Um, so I really enjoyed that. I, I found the, the search very fulfilling. Um, of course, you want to always have a deal uh, that you're pursuing to close. So um, even if you enjoy the search process and meeting hundreds of business owners, you do want to be getting close close mm -hmm. to uh, single business owners on specific deals uh, because your ultimate goal is to close, uh, close and acquire a company and then start operating that company. Uh, and Googling you, I found this really interesting HBS case that Harvard wrote about you. It was called Discover Capital. And uh, in this case, they mentioned a deal you were about to close acquiring a fitness franchise. And I thought it was really interesting because the case ends with the owner sending you a text. He says, I'm willing to come down on price and accept your offer. 
Uh, can you can you tell me a little bit more about that deal? Why you thought it was attractive, and why you were interested in uh, closing this deal? Um, so with that that particular deal, um, what had happened in the case, and this case was written uh, only about four months into my search, so it was still pretty early. Um, what had happened in that particular case was that deal had a broker involved, and the broker had submitted us a certain set of financials that we then made an offer based on. And once we um, got the green light to continue and got to look at their full books, uh, we learned that those financials needed to be adjusted. And so where that case was ending was we had to adjust the price based on those recast financials. And that's never a situation that a seller enjoys. Wow. That sounds really frustrating of like having to adjust not only the price, but looking at the financials and like realizing that it really isn't as good as you thought it looked. Um, So how many times during your search period did you get close to a deal and something like this happened? Great question. Uh, We did not close that deal. And uh, to talk about the funnel specifically, that was one of 42 companies I made a non-binding offer on during the course of my search. Um, To to really get into the numbers, um, in the course of my search, I identified uh, almost 8,000 companies. So these were companies uh, that were really, or these were lists of companies, I should say, that were built by our team of, our excellent team of interns who would build lists based on our investment criteria within specific industries that we were searching in. Um, so that, out of that 8,000 lists of companies, we contacted 4,600 of those. And of those 4,600 that we reached out to, uh, almost entirely by email, by the way, uh, we received 500, a little under 500 responses um, from owners that were interested in talking further. Um, So that funnel led to, or that, that 500 led to 121 meetings with distinct owners. Um, Naturally, a lot of series of discussions were multiple meetings with the same owners, but we really count that 121 as first meetings with an owner for the the first time. And like I mentioned, that led to 42 non-binding offers, four binding letters of intent uh, issued, of which three of those were accepted and we entered diligence. Uh, So those were my numbers, and I searched from 2014 to 2016. I will say that searchers today, using much better digital marketing and outreach tools, are doing two, three, four times this. Uh, I'm curious to know, like, which industries were you looking at uh, into the very, very beginning of the funnel? So in the beginning, I was looking at health and wellness, at education, at elder care, and then because of my personal background, media and technology companies. And over the course of my search, those were really refined based on what I saw looking at those industries. Um, So in some cases, Uh, For instance, education. At the time, for-profit education was facing a lot of legal and regulatory unknowns, and that made the the for-profit higher education space 
a non-starter in terms of, of M&A activity. Um, mm-hmm. So where I, I went from there was looking into test prep and looking into for-profit K-12 through education and specific niches like music education and the arts and sports education. Um, and then that led to corporate education. And from corporate education, I ended up looking at companies that uh, were in what I'll call the governance, risk, and compliance sector. And it's, so it's, it's following the evolution of uh, industry-based search will lead you into specific topics that are going to be more attractive than others um, with regards to sectors where you should focus a search. And that was really what happened over over the two years is we'd have these high-level industry theses that would get refined by going narrower and narrower into subsectors and subcategories. You're always looking for macro-level tailwinds. Um, so you're looking for dynamics where the industry as a, as a whole is outpacing the growth of the economy overall. Um, that, that is something that, that's one of the initial macro factors you look for. Uh, you also look for things like highly fragmented industries. You don't want an industry where there's you know, a, a big gorilla in the space or there's a, a number of large players. You want something where you see a lot of small businesses thriving in a, in a fragmented sector. Um, I'm curious to know, because I know that after your search, you decided not to buy a company um, after going through this process, and you started to you started a company from the ground instead. Uh, can you tell me what happened? I, I'm really interested to hear what happened. Certainly. So we had a deal get killed at the finish line near the end of my search timeline, and that had consumed a lot of our remaining resources. So as I was approaching that two-year mark, uh, my options were to continue searching self-funded, to raise an extension of search capital for my investors, uh, to build a greenfield venture in one of the areas I was looking to make an acquisition in, or to go back to the corporate world or go back and, and get a job somewhere. And of those four, uh, I did actually continue searching self-funded through the end of 2016. Um, Raising an extension of search capital is something that is is generally, there's a lot of support for uh, if you ran a good search during your time frame. Um, However, the, um, the implications of that are if you raise search capital, any search capital that you raise you ultimately have to deliver a performance against that equity in the subsequent operations of your company. Uh, So let's say you raise $400,000 for your initial search and you raise an extension of another $300,000. Well, when you go to buy a company, you're carrying $700,000 of what we call dead equity, that's D-E-A-D, not D-E-B-T, dead equity into a deal that is not going towards the purchase price. Um, So that really creates a mandate for you to go do a bigger deal to negate the impact of that search capital um, against the overall purchase price. 
and the market conditions were such in 2016 that multiples were really going up a lot. Uh, at the beginning of my search, you could, you were seeing search deals getting done at four times EBITDA, five times EBITDA, and that left a lot of room to create value through multiple expansion during your holding period of the acquired company. Um, by 2016, what you saw was other private equity firms coming down market, so looking at smaller deals, and you saw strategics coming down market to look for add-ons. And that created a lot more competition in the segment of the market where searchers are typically looking for targets and the multiples that were, we were seeing in 2016 were six, even seven times or greater. And so all of those market conditions really made an expansion of, or an extension of search capital not a great option. And it also made you know, doing a deal at a premium a tough option because that's, you know, as a searcher, you've got to deliver performance against that, and that's going to be very much more driven off of revenue growth and margin enhancement than it will on, on multiple expansion when you have a less opportunity to see that during the course of, of your operations. And I did not find a good um, target that was ready for an M&A event during the, the timeline of my search. And what I did see was that there was a constraint to the industry in the form of financing. Um, this industry, they sold to businesses small to enterprise size. Um, they sold everything from a, a single digital kiosk or automated retail solution or robotic solution to a small business all the way to a, a national rollout at the enterprise level. Um, so whether it was small or big in size, these were big investments for the buyer. And they wanted to lease them or they wanted to pay over time. And the industry participants weren't built for that. They weren't built to self-finance their own customers. Hmm. And banks and equipment finance companies uh, didn't like to finance these types of solutions because they were very custom and there was no easy aftermarket. And so there was this big problem in an industry I was searching in and no viable solution. And so as an experiment, I said, let's, let's start a business to fix that problem, to solve that problem. And we began by matching a, a few financing opportunities to existing banks and equipment finance companies uh, within our network, uh, acting as a broker, um, but really being a trusted advisor and value at it services provider to the self-service and automation companies we were working with, and that became Impreza. And Impreza is the greenfield company that I am now running. And what Impreza did, or I guess what Impreza does, is we took the list of companies that I had reached out to to try to acquire in the sector and turned that into our channel. Um, these are the companies that call Impreza when they need financing on a solution they're selling. Where did you find inspiration to become an entrepreneur? Because you have to be very brave and just listening to your story, I mean, it's very inspiring how after your search, you decided to do a startup. It's very unique. So I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about your history and how you um, how you inspired to to do what you did. 
You know, I would say I, I've always found that creators of meaningful jobs provide society with significant value, and that's always been one of my personal motivations as an entrepreneur. Um, so a bit of a general answer, um, but on a different note, to name someone specific, uh, according to some of my investors, I'm remembered for saying that Gwen Stefani was my catalyst into entrepreneurship. Uh, the short version of that is that the album Tragic Kingdom by No Doubt changed my teenage life in the mid-90s, which led to starting rock bands and later starting a little music promotion venture back in high school with a few friends. Um, so that was really my start in the world of entrepreneurship. I'm wondering, like, you were the only female active searcher in 2014. Like, that's just amazing. It's just so empowering. And what your opinion of why not that many women were not pursuing the same path? Well, fortunately, I, I was just at the Search Fund Partners Convocation uh, last Saturday, and there are now many more women searchers, so that's definitely changed. And uh, I also have to give credit to um, Karen Moriarty. She was, I believe, the first female searcher um, and uh, so I, I say that because I was, um, even if I was the only active searcher at the time, I certainly wasn't the first. There are many more women pursuing this pathway now, um, which was very, very promising. And in general, there is a greater diversity of backgrounds, of geographic locations, of strategies for searching um, out there now than there were back when I was searching. Um, so this is definitely something where we've seen greater diversity, and I think that'll be very um, well reflected in the, the types of deals that are getting done, and uh, also the proliferation of the search fund slash ETA model um, beyond the U.S. borders. Um, so that, that there's a lot of promise there. In general, the biggest constraint I saw was not having that flexibility I spoke to earlier um, amongst their entire family to pick up and move anywhere where they may find a deal. Um, so I think that was the biggest constraint, and is some searchers are addressing this by doing either regionally focused searches or um, some you know, particular search strategy that gives them you know, more indication of where they'll be going um, or what kind of company they'll be buying. So I, I think that there are different ways of working around that. Um, but ultimately, if you are going down this path, you want to make sure you are creating enough options for deals. Um, and there, there is going to be that, that general need for flexibility and, and being able to pick up and move for the right deal. Yeah, I imagine not a lot of people can just pick up and move. Um, it's quite, it's quite a big risk for a lot of families and a lot of, and a lot of women everywhere. Um, what would you say was the biggest risk you've taken in your career so, so far? I think the perceived risks were greater than the actual risks, and, and I think that applies across the board. Um, when I was leaving the corporate world to do this, um, there was a, a greater perceived risk that um, it was the point of no return and it would be difficult to get back into it. And now having seen uh, so many peers and even considering myself different opportunities, I can see that it's it's really not 
uh, a single decision with the no turning back option. Um, it's easy to get back into the corporate world if you decide you want to after a, a shot at entrepreneurship, and it's also easy to create um, an incredible roster of other opportunities um, related to entrepreneurship if your you know, first, second, and third efforts don't go the way you want it to. And so I would look at risk as, um, you know, when, when you're looking at it from do I take the step, do I take the plunge, do I become an entrepreneur, uh, I think the perceived risk is, is really a lot greater than, than the actual risk. So before we wrap up, I just want to know um, how is your company doing now? What is your vision of the future? And then we can start wrapping up. Certainly. Uh, so we are growing and very uh, excited about the future. We've um, built a channel partner program that exceeds 120 vendors that call Impreza when they are selling a solution and they need financing, and we continue to grow. Uh, we've seen a lot of growth in the point-of-sale side. Um, we're starting to do more on the robotics end as well, and, and really we're finding that uh, the sectors that we focus on financing uh, have those tailwinds of industry growth behind them. It's a space where um, a lot of industries, um, retail, financial services, food and beverage, healthcare, um, et cetera, really across industry, they're all making these investments in self-service and automation technology. And fortunately, uh, the recent tax reform that's been passed um, has incentivized further investment in this space as well. So it's um, really a great time to be at the convergence of technology equipment finance and self-service and automation technology. Uh, so a lot of our listeners are MBA students. So I, my last question for you is, if we traded places tomorrow, what advice would you give me, an MBA student, for the day? I would say um, my favorite piece of advice in general is get in the habit of always asking yourself, uh, am I making the best use of this moment? And the reason why I like that question is it's grounding, it brings you into the present moment, um, yet it also makes you more productive um, and it gives you the ability to capture those compound gains from having positive daily habits. And so that's a question that I found um, served me in a number of ways and I like to share that with others because it just helps you get into the moment and not waste any time and really be the, the best person, the best entrepreneur you can be.